I'm just looking at you, appreciating you. It's amazing how different the banana uh, flowers look as the days go on. These people are blooming open. Someone came into the group today and said, uh, oh, we're a whole plantation of bananas in, in full bloom. And it's true in the groups. Everybody in here looks so you know, calm during the you know, sittings, don't they? All look like still enlightened Buddhas sitting here. And then you get into the groups and you go, oh my God, all of that is going on in this room. And it's all being held in this um, beautiful space. So I bow to everything you're doing as the banana trees bloom in the meditation hall. You can't hear me. Oh, okay. Well, let's crank it up. <laughs> crank it up. Okay. How is that? Is that better for you? No, it's not better for you. Still low. Interesting. It sounds so normal to me. Okay. Well, let's just keep working on it. Tell me when it's better for you. Is it working? Is it getting louder? It's not. It's just not getting louder. And a lot of you are noticing that. Wow. Um, well, okay. If I, if I give the whole talk like this, can you hear me? I think I have to use the other mic. Okay, we'll, we'll take two on this. This is actually part of the secret esoteric teachings. After you sat for a couple days, thank you, Julie, you get the, the microphone teaching. How is that? Okay, yeah, it sounds really loud to me. Okay, so, so, where were we? We're here in in the meditation retreat, oh yes. So, most people by 2012 have heard of something called the Four Noble Truths. Oops, the volume just went way down, didn't it? Okay, Four Noble Truths which we're demonstrating with the technology. Raise your hand if you have heard of the Four Noble Truths. See, isn't that something? Almost every single person, it, like I said the other night, didn't used to be that way. So as a, as a review, the Buddha got completely enlightened. He could have gone to his friends and said anything. He could have talked about every realm and every universe. He could have told them about anything. He was the Buddha. And he sat down with his friends and he said, Friends, first noble truth, this life is filled with dissatisfaction and suffering. First noble truth. And when you really feel it, you go, wow, not only was it wise, it's a really a compassionate place to start. It's just lay it out how it really is here. It's a difficult planet. There's all kind of loss. And you know, you've, you experience it sitting here, just sitting in this beautiful place. My God, there's so much dif- discomfort of mind and emotion and there's loss and old age and all these things that come with a human birth. So the Buddha went on to the second noble truth and he said the cause of the suffering 
isn't the fact that we get old or that there's illness. The cause is that we grasp, we attempt to hold on, for instance, to youth when we are getting old. It's that grasping or that struggling with the way it is, the aversion, the pushing away what we don't want. That is what he calls the cause of suffering. And just because we happen to have sitting here with us, not only our meditation teacher and our yoga teacher, but you might not know that Anne is most well-known as a writer. And she writes all sorts of things in books. And this happened to be a funny piece she had years ago in the San Francisco Chronicle about interviewing roommates. <laughs> she forgot it. It was, a long, it was another lifetime for her. So this is just uh, the fact about this second noble truth, the cause of suffering is that we attempt to grasp and hold on or we push away. The fact is we all do that all the time. So we might as well admit it and laugh about it. So this is, this is a moment to <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> and wait till you hear how many of us will be embarrassed by this. This time, our candidate was a wiry, hostile woman named Naomi, shellacked with makeup, who jogged up our steps wearing a skin-tight spandex bodysuit and illuminated wrist weights. Throughout our meeting, she steadily flexed and straightened her arms so as not to squander valuable workout time. (laughs) What do you do, Naomi? We asked her. These days, she told us, I'm mainly doing my butt. What? Once you pass 35, if you let your butt go for a minute, you just might as well pull over to the side of the road and die. (laughs) Thank you, Anne. (laughs) That is an explanation of the second noble truth. That is called suffering. And we can go a long way with those images, but we just won't. So fortunately, from the third of uh, the second noble truth, the suffering, the Buddha goes on to the third noble truth, the good news. Even here in this realm, with all this impermanence and change and difficulty, even here, if this tight, grasping fist is suffering, then this opening, letting go, is the way to freedom. So that's the good news. So um, I have been very fortunate to get the opportunity to study with great teachers at different places in the world and different traditions. And over and over again, whether they're men or women, whether they're Buddhist or Hindu or Advaita or whoever they are, they keep saying the same thing. Our beautiful teacher, Julie and I love, Sony Rinpoche, says, grasping is samsara, letting go, is nirvana. It's, that's how it is. Suffering is the fight with life. So, um, our most essential truth of who we all are, what's inside the essence of all of us, in this tradition, here the forest tradition, is called the natural state. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a beautiful phrase, as there are in Tibetan Buddhism, the natural great perfection. So our deepest nature is naturally wise and loving and clear and open and free. And 
we may have noticed by sitting with our own experience in our own mind and body for a couple days, that beautiful luminous clarity gets obscured a bit, doesn't it? And if we pay close attention, you'll see all this activity, grasping, wanting, all the stories and fantasies connected with grasping and wanting and all the activity of aversion and I don't like it and how can I change it? All of that obscures the natural state, the great perfection that is the very essence of who we are. So the journey of awakening is a journey of learning about this second and third noble truth. We learn where we're holding. We learn about opening and letting go. And in that opening, there is an uncovering of the natural truth of what and who we really are. So um, this is probably one of the most quoted pieces of writing from the Theravada tradition. Uh, this is Ajahn Sumedho, the um, elder of our tradition, the Western elder, and quite a guy, quite a guy. So Ajahn Sumedho says, simplify your practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice or that practice or achieve this or go into this state or, and go into that state and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidharma and learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordination and Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana and write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism instead Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go. Let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go. Let go. Until desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) That's true. Thank you, Ajahn Sumedho. So for myself and many of my friends and teachers and people I know and my colleagues, uh, we have found that probably one of the very most powerful ways to learn about this grasping and this letting go is through the body. And you may have been noticing that this week as well. And because the body is such a teacher of how it feels when we let go. Also for me, the body is the one who tells me when I'm holding on for dear life. It makes it so clear. You noticed? It really is quite obvious. So um, take a moment. You don't have to change your position, but just close your eyes. Just close your eyes and take your attention inside And just notice the experience of your body from the inside 
just find some place that you can relax a little, maybe shoulder or jaw. Let your belly soften. And now, find a place that's even subtler. Let your attention go in and soften something that's like a little micro tension, melt, open the body. Maybe working in just one location or it may be moving and let your belly soften again and drop down in. So you can notice now the effect of about 30 seconds or a minute of relaxing your body, the effect on your mind. Just notice. You can open your eyes. Isn't it amazing? The effect of a little opening. Stephen Levine says, the practice of softening the body is the physical act of letting go which accompanies the mental act of release. It's a physical trigger for a mental phenomena that reminds the body of the opportunity for peace. And I have a feeling everybody's learning that at the Yoga Nidra very deeply. It's really a real obvious learning. I don't know if you've ever had to fly in and out of Albuquerque. Anybody done that? So you know there's this thing. You go over these steep mountains and the airplane's going down and it's really turbulent almost every time. The same is true in two other places I had to go, Durango and Tucson or somewhere. There's these mountains and you're going down and it's like a quite a ride. So I had become somewhat used to the extreme turbulence entering Albuquerque to go teach in Santa Fe. And I had, you know, I used to be more scared of it, and I got less and less scared because I was, okay, we're not going to crash. It happens every time. So we start down, and uh, except this time it was really bucking bronco kind of, you know, it was like the most turbulent I had ever experienced. And it was really quite, like, I felt like the air, will the airplane really hold together through this, you know? And um, you could hear the baggage creaking and stuff. And women were sort of gasping and um, holding on tight and... I noticed that these women near me were sort of different colors of green and yellow and white, you know. And, and then I noticed that I, my stomach was tight. And I thought, wow, that's interesting, because my mind wasn't, my mind was saying, it's okay, I live every time, <laughs> every time I go this, I live. But my stomach was tight. It was like my stomach was trying to hold the airplane up in the air or something. And I thought, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> what? What would happen, really, if I soften my stomach right now? I mean, the airplane is not going to crash if I relax my stomach. Let me try. 
So I, I tried solving my stomach is riding through this thing. It's also in a descent. It's a really steep descent in Albuquerque. So you're like, Nyeh. and I'm trying to soften my stomach. And what happened when I relaxed my belly is I felt love for these scared women that were sitting there. And so I could start sending the metta. And it was like, oh, this is just exactly what Stephen just said. When the body can open, the mind, the heart, there's room. You can relax. A whole other part of me became accessible. So when we talk and talk and talk about letting go, if you come to Buddhist retreats, you hear a lot about letting go. What are we talking about letting go of? Really? The mortgage? High-speed internet hookup? Think about that. My, our tenant and I lost our high-speed internet hookup for a day, and we thought the world was about to end. Really? Well, how, did, how did we used to live? Really? Are we talking about letting go of um, our job? You know? So, sometimes we are called, there's a genuine call to an outer renunciation where you really do let go of your job or your household or life or something. It's a calling. And if you have that calling, it's important to follow it for the amount of time that it's appropriate. But the freedom, the real freedom that comes with the third noble truth, the real letting go, is always an inner letting go, inner renunciations. You could be a monk or nun and not ever get free if you keep, you know, it, it has to be the inside. And what we're letting go of again and again, every time we let go of a little holding, a little tension, every time we let go of a preference or a little fight with life, we're letting go of layers and layers of our ego identity, our little self who says, I, me, I'm, I'm real and I'm important. And we're, we're not like ever saying, we don't like you, little self, <laughs> go away, that doesn't work at all. But it's more like we're not, we're letting go of identity with that, like, ah, little self is saying, eh, and we're going, ah, we're letting go of that, holding on to that story of that self in little layers, micro layers after layers after layers. So a lot of the letting go is who I thought I was or how I thought it was supposed to be. After all, my life was supposed to be. <laughs> I, Deborah wasn't supposed to get a 25-year chronic illness. I didn't have that. That's not supposed to happen. Let it go. It did happen. So, um, years ago, I was at a teaching with a beautiful old Rinpoche, and someone asked, he was from Tibet, someone said, Rinpoche, on American, we're at, in America. What is ego? And Rinpoche had a long discussion with the translator. It took them, you know, you, you know, you, the question was like four words, and they talked for a minute. You know, everybody's waiting and waiting. What is ego? Clearly, they don't have a word like that in Tibetan. In Tibetan, so it's like, what is ego? Finally, the translator comes back with the translation. Ego is tension. And I, you know, a little psychologist me says. Oh, that's so sweet. You know, they didn't get it. You know, they're, 
we're so sophisticated, you know, we, we understand these things and they don't really, you know, it's fine. You know, oh, so arrogant, you know, so. Now, many, many years later, 15, 20 years later, if you asked me, Deborah, how, how do you experience ego in your body? Ego is tension. He was totally right. He was so right from such a deep level. He got it. I was so arrogant. (laughs) So every little grasping thought, every little aversion lives in our body as some little tension, holding, bracing, numbing, solidness, every little part of it. So when in practice what we're doing, we become present, we start becoming aware of all this. Isn't it amazing what you could be aware of in your body that you didn't know a few days ago? <laughs> it's a whole universe. We become aware, we discover these little places, and there's ah, a little let go here, opening here. Space begins to open. And as you probably notice, many of you imagine notice, that meditation that follows the yoga nidra um, can be super bright, clear, silent, empty, open. It can be, it doesn't have to be, but it can be. Why? Because we relaxed for a few minutes. All that grasping aversion that's in the body relaxes in the body-mind. The channel's open, and what's there? Clear, open, quiet, peace. So the, the Uga Nidra is super important as a training to keep going. Oh, what does that feel like? Oh, I can do that. Oh, it's safe. It's safe to really open. So the Buddha once supposedly said, if I could teach only one practice, it would be mindfulness of the body. I think you said that the other night. Did you say that? In this, you said that quote too? Something like, uh, something like that. You said the fathom long body one, then I said that one. But anyway, this one is, if I, it's good, it's worth saying again. If I could teach only one practice, it would be mindfulness of the body. So the um, mindfulness of the body, as we've said over and over, brings us in to the present, brings us into this moment. The and then we learn what we see, what the mindfulness sees as we're practicing is that the moment tends to keep getting filled with plans and schemes and dreams and fantasies and fears and concerns and comparisons and, you know, or spacing out. And all of that activity creates a sense of a filter. It filters, it, it filters the truth, the luminous truth of our deeper nature mindfulness of the body can cut through the filter. And I think that's one of the main reasons the Buddha said, if I had one to teach, there's many reasons why he would say that. When we can be present for just a moment with an experience in the body, a grasping, an aversion, whatever, in in the body... Whatever is the experience in the body, maybe it's a bliss experience or maybe it's a, ugh, I don't like it experience, but if we can meet it without the grasping, I want this to last. Or, ugh, I want this to end. 
if we're just with it this moment, that moment is a moment of mindfulness. It's actually a moment of freedom and it's cultivating as, as what's his name? <laughs> Ms. Fiscal said the other night, it's cultivating, sorry, it was a joke, said um, it's cultivating a future moment of freedom, actual freedom right there in the moment. So it's not like we're supposed to have an experience, not ha- uh, have a life that's all just perfect and no experiences and no discomforts. That's not going to happen here. It's, it's learning this new way of being with all these experiences. So as I m- mentioned a, a moment ago, I had the experience of living for many years with a chronic illness. And um, then uh, some years ago, I came upon intensive Qigong and I got much, much better. And I cannot tell you the great joy and relief of that. Um, yes, I practiced letting go and accepting and wow, was it preferable to feel good instead of bad. Let's, I mean, of course, <laughs> definitely more fun. And then um, a few months ago, I was sitting at a retreat and uh, couple days into this retreat, I got this headache. And I, the headache reminded me of a headache I used to sometimes get when I was sick. And I hadn't had that for years, for the years of being well. Headache. So I go into this story. Oh no, the sickness is coming back. Oh no, 25 more years. Oh no, I won't be able to work. Oh no, I'll be a bag lady. You know, just this whole extra, extra, not necessary, you know, extra stuff about um, a headache. So somewhere in the middle of this worry, and it's my fault, and I overcommitted, and I did too much, and I shouldn't have taken on so much. And, uh, uh, uh. So somewhere in the middle of all that, I remembered... Oh yeah, the thing I teach, mindfulness of the body. What about that, Deborah? What's actually the present moment sensation, actually? It's pressure. That's all it is. Oh, some tension. There's this huge story and there was just, it came down to just pressure. So I just was there and in that, in that just, oh, it's just pressure. There was this sense of such a relief that suffering was caused about from my aversion to the fear of sickness. That was the suffering. When I relaxed the story, it was just a pressure in my head. I didn't like it, but I wasn't suffering. And actually, when there wasn't the suffering self there, the extra self... I felt this um, for a while, a few hours, this um, lightness of being, this sort of like delight. It's just like, yes, there's this thing, but there was this space, this lightness of being. And in a kind of sense of a, a freedom or a peace, it's like, oh, the freedom to have an experience without suffering. Like I said, it lasted a little while. So this possibility for this freedom or this peace is here and everybody I think in this room has had some kind of taste or hint of it Um, and yet we drift back again and again and again to the reactions 
and the stories and the graspings and the aversions, don't we? Does anybody else beside me notice that? And a lot of times we'll go into story, we'll go into sleepiness, we'll go into confusion, we'll even go into an awful story and repeat it. Not all the time, but oftentimes to avoid something that's happening in the present moment that we don't want to feel. And, and it's, a, a, it's an unconscious process, but it, we, we did it today in one of our groups. There was three of the women were having different things that were covering a deeper feeling. So um, sometimes the stuff we don't want to feel is a physical pain, emotional pain. We're avoiding it. Sometimes it's an expansive state that we're, uh, it's, the, uh, it's so unknown that we're afraid of it. So it's like, you know, please really let me obsess again about, I don't know, cleaning my carpet rather than expand into empty bliss. You know what I mean? (laughs) Kidding. Really, anything but that. And that's weird, but we'll do it. We'll, We'll do things to avoid what we're actually experiencing. So uh, back to my retreat that I was telling you about, my, the headache. So um, the headache kept going. And I did okay that first few hours. And then there was the next 10, the next 20, then the next day. And then, so a couple days after the experience I told you about, it was really hard. It was getting just hard. It was getting a drag. It hurt. And it was, you know, pain, anybody here who's felt pain, it's not easy to practice with pain, but pain in the head, I feel this at the dentist too, disturbance in my head, it affects, it makes me dull and it's hard to be present. You know, I'm trying to be present, but there's this thing. So I was dull and uncomfortable and I was getting really tired of this and I did, you know, the naming of it and I did the relaxing around it and I did the opening space around it. I did, you know, I did it all. And somewhere along this, I saw clearly that all the doing was subtly being driven by aversion. I was actually trying to get rid of it. And I know better, you know, I teach this stuff. But I didn't like it, and I wanted it to go away. And, and it had, it, it, aversion is a tricky thing. Mara is a tricky thing. It, it sneaks up, and it's, it, it can sneak around the corner and, and be masqueraded in all kind of ways. So there was aversion. And there's a teaching, I mentioned this to a group yesterday, that if you're really caught in aversion, a teaching of the Buddha and you can't get out. You can't be present. You can't be mindful. You've tried everything. You've tried the mindfulness. You've tried everything that you know to do, and you're still stuck in aversion. Then you apply the antidote, the medicine. And I know there's a group of people in here who know the answer. What is the antidote to aversion? See? Very good. Love. And then when love touches the, dif- the difficulty, as Pascal said the other night, it is compassion. So there was like nowhere to go for me but compassion. There was no, that's all that was left. I couldn't really practice. So compassion. 
to the pain, compassion to the dullness, compassion to how hard it can sometimes be to be in a physical body and all that it puts us through, compassion to the worry that I was getting the sickness again. And, and as the compassion opens to oneself, it was like in compassion to whoever else is sitting here in pain and but compassion to all the others who are in real pain. This is a headache, you know, real, real pain, compassion. And this, this compassion, in the compassion, something began happening Compassion helped me let go of the idea that I had to let go. Because the ideal, the should, of should let go was becoming a suffering. I was using the Third Noble Truth as another way, another tool against myself. I couldn't let go. The headache wasn't letting go, and neither was the aversion, compassion. So there was a letting go of the need to let go. And that's a, we call that let yourself be. Deborah, let it be. Let yourself be. Which is a form of letting go, but it's... uh, uh, There's a way, you you learn a trick in meditation, and you'll just keep trying the trick. Until the trick stops working, you, then you actually have to practice. That's what I was talking Oh, yeah, let it be. It was like letting go, let it be. You know, I, maybe I'll always have a headache. Maybe I'll always be dull. Maybe I'll never awaken. You know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, let it. Maybe so. Can I, can, compassion on that? Compassion. So this whole compassion opened and melted, softened me. And something interesting happened. It allowed me to actually get much closer, much more intimate, as Julie said, to that experience in my head. It was like I actually entered into the tension, the energy in the tension. I was inside of it in a new way because there wasn't so much extra around it. It was the resistance And I got in there in the back of my head and I felt a heavy, foreboding feeling. The word was foreboding. And I realized, well, there's something I don't want to see. There's something I don't want to feel. As soon as I was aware of that, as soon as that became conscious, then it instantly became clear what it was. I had a feeling my good friend Gina was going to die. And um, I did not want to have that feeling. I certainly did not want that to be correct. I had been unconsciously using not just the tension, the headache, but then all the stories, all the spinning, huge smoke screen, huge camouflage, huge avoidance of just feeling, facing this thing I didn't want to face. And um, her doctors surely didn't think she was going to die. She didn't have any sickness that was going to cause her to die. Her family surely didn't think she was going to die. So I was telling myself I was over-worried. That must be just over-worried. 
I was trying to push away this other feeling that I had had before with other people that has a very particular feeling. So as I sat and I was present with this, I knew, well, whether this feeling is true or not true, I have to sit with this feeling. I I have to be present with this feeling of grief. I have to allow this, which is actually here, to be here. And I just sat there and there was grief and and the feelings of loss and and, um, certainly hoping I was wrong, but feeling that connection with her. And so I was with her the next month, one month later, as she did die. And I was glad um, I had gone through this really glad because I felt much more able to be there with her because everybody else was in so much shock. She wasn't supposed to die. Nobody knew she was going to die. Suddenly one day she was dying. She went to the hospital for a procedure. So, the thing I'm calling avoidance um, where we can, there's a defense mechanism going on in the body-mind where we don't want to see or feel something, that can be okay. It's not a wrong thing. It can actually be the healthy thing under certain conditions of trauma. The body naturally shuts down in a certain way. But when the avoidance becomes continual, when it becomes unconscious, it becomes our way of coping with feelings, then there's a problem. Because what happens is that we cut off. We live, we're living now in our head and we're cut off from our direct experience of our whole body, of our feelings. It cuts us off from the earth, it cuts us off from each other, cuts us off from the passion and joy of life. We're cut, we're cut off, we're disconnected. So, and of course, we all know that this unnameable amounts of damage, um, amount of damage is, or anyway, is done um, to the earth, to human beings who are other, whoever other may be. When we're cut off, we don't feel you don't feel. And if you don't feel, you don't feel the damage you do to other or to earth or to water or to air. So cut off is a dangerous thing to be. Joanna Macy um, says it's crucial that we feel. Don't get the idea that Buddhist practice means we're supposed to somehow become cut off and aloof from feeling. It's crucial that we feel And mindfulness of the body awakens our capacity to feel. For better and for worse, it wakes us up to the whole life. But it's important. So um, we don't practice in Buddhist practice to repress emotion. And we don't practice to uh, entangle or identify with emotion strong emotions happen. But we learn that um, it's possible to be with, to allow strong emotions without the aversion pushing away and without grasping and identifying. And it's possible to let them unfold in, as energy, as Julie was teaching this morning. Even really difficult stuff, 
like terror, like grief. Um, we can meet with presence, with uh, curiosity, with interest, as the um, as meditation. So uh, another story I was teaching a ten day retreat, and this was maybe six, seven days into a ten day, and a woman comes in to the interview, individual interview at that retreat. And she says, um, I don't think this is working for me. It's, I, I just, uh, if, if I'm sleepy all the time, and if I'm not sleepy, I'm restless. And it's just between sleepy and restless, and it's been almost a week, and I'm actually considering going home. And I said, well, and I asked this to somebody in a group today, if you weren't being sleepy and you weren't being restless and your mind was scattered, what do you think you might actually be experiencing in your body? What, what's there? She said, oh, I know exactly what it is. It's fear. I don't want to feel it. I've been feeling nothing but fear for the last two years, and I came here to not feel fear. She said, I... I, I uh, Two years ago, I got a diagnosis treatment for cancer, and she said, I have two young daughters, and I'm terrified of recurrence, and I've done everything to stop the fear. I've been to every therapy and every aroma and every Bach flower and every positive, you know, she said, I've pounded pillows. <laughs> and the, she said, the only reason I came to this 10-day retreat, is her first one she'd never been, is to learn the Buddhist way of not being filled with fear of getting rid of fear. So you know the rap I'm about to give her. You know, you know what I'm about, about to say to her. I'm sorry to tell you this, but, you know, uh, guess what? <laughs> we actually don't try to get rid of fear or rage or grief or jealousy. That's, that's, it's not the way, it's not that we try to hold on to it, but that's not what we're trying to do. So, um, there's this learning a different way to be with the fear. So we become present, we come into our body. And um, if you notice that the fear, in this case, or the anger or whatever, is pulling you away, is pulling your attention, it's really strong, take your attention directly in to the physical sensation of the fear itself. And let the fear become the object of the meditation. Drop the breath. Don't even try to stay with the breath. Now your object of meditation is the direct felt sense of fear. And um, she's kind of looking at me like, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, a little disappointed. And she's really definitely reluctant. She said, well, I'll give it a try. You know, I said, do you want to try it right now? Okay. So I said, do you feel right now, anywhere in your body, the fear? She said, oh yeah, it's always here. I said, where is it? And she says, and what does it feel like? And she said, my stomach and my chest are tight. I said, good mindfulness, good, you notice that. Can you be present, out of the story, out of the trying to get rid, and just be present with the actual sensation of tight chest, tight stomach? So she sat there, and I said, what's happening? She said, it's getting tighter. It's getting tighter, and my breath is getting shallow, and I'm maybe going toward panic. 
And I'm saying, okay, I'm right here. Do you want to keep going? Would you like to just experience this tighterness for just one moment? It's the only amount you have to go ever is just one moment. You don't have to figure, I cannot ask for five minutes. You don't have to figure, can I last for an hour? No. Do I wish to do this for one moment? So she said, okay, one moment. Okay, I feel this tightness and... and um, she said, I feel like there's a terror, that's a, there's a wall and holding this terror. And then she just began to sob, just began to shake and sweat and sob and just was saying, I am terrified of losing it. I'm terrified this cancer go into my brain and my little girls would have to watch me lose it. And I, it's, I cannot bear that thought. And, and she said, and, and I don't want to lose control in any way and... and then she was sobbing and crying, and finally she said, I, and I'm just really afraid of the unknown. This is out of control, and I'm afraid of the unknown. And having said all that, she got quiet for a few minutes, and I said, what's happening right now inside? As this was a meditation. She said, I feel like the ground is slipping out from under my feet. She said, I, she said, it's like there's a great, huge abyss opening up. This is really scary. And I feel like I'm going to fall. And I said, again, I'm right here. Would you like to just be present with this experience for one moment? She said, I'm falling. I'm falling. And she was afraid, like I'm out of control. And I said, what are you falling through? And her whole body went, she said, it's soft. She said, it's like black velvet. And there's no bottom. And her body totally relaxed. She just relaxed. It's peaceful. She relaxed and she uh, allowed her body and mind to open and actually, she felt so safe in this soft blackness, this uh, luminous black, bottomless, boundless, that she said, um, later she described just letting her mind and her body just dissolve into that peace. Just, so it just was this vast quiet. So this is a powerful experience. Please don't, if because I told you the story, don't try to think you're supposed to have that experience. Don't effort to have it. You can't effort to have it. Um, I'm sharing it because it, it's, it's you know it's making a point. By the way, you can have an experience of like that, and doesn't mean you're enlightened. It doesn't mean you stop suffering or anything. So I talked to her three months later. How's it going? She said, well, the first two weeks were pretty bumpy. I felt a lot of waves of fear. And sometimes I could be with it, have some compassion, and sometimes I pushed it away. And she said, now it's less, there's less waves of fear. She said, but what I really got from that uh, whole retreat and that experience, before that experience, it seemed like the fear, the fear of what was, could happen to me was the biggest thing 
sense that experience, I now know for sure that there is something much more vast than my fear. And it's holding my fear. It's holding my girls. It's, it's, it's holding me. There's a beautiful um, way to put that. So the, some of you have heard this many times. I, I love this. Kabir, the bhakti mystic from India in the 1200s says, and when he used this phrase, clay jug, he means this body. Inside this clay jug, there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. And the music from the strings no one touches and the source of all water. If you want the truth, I will tell you the truth. Friend, listen. The God whom I love is inside. So this uh, woman in the story, uh, hopefully you heard, that was a story not just about being present in the body, it was letting go. There was so much letting go that happened. She let go of her avoidance of that feeling. She let go of her protection. She totally entered the body. She let go and experienced the unknown, the fear of the unknown. So this would be called like radical letting go. That's over the edge, you know, of what it was. And by the way, I want to say something. That level of terror where you really are, it's, it's over the edge, most often happens in the presence of someone. That happened because I was sitting with her. It wasn't going to happen in the meditation hall. She needed that container. Don't, it, very rare it could happen that you're sitting in the hall and you go through that level, but usually it happens when you're with a teacher if there's anything of that magnitude because it's, it requires holding to, be, um, to, to let go that far or to face that much fear. Um... Usually that kind of letting go, the facing of the unknown, the fears of death and the fears that are the big uh, mahad disappearances usually happen thousands and thousands of what we call little deaths. Just a little moment of letting go, just for a moment of holding on to something, just a moment of relaxing is actually how it generally unfolds. That was more like a swan dive for her. Um, (laughs) But... um, other reason I told this story is that it was through her body, directly through the sensations in and the exploration in her body that she discovered a deep emptiness and peace, boundless peace. So, um, like I said, please don't try to have her experience, but the whole idea is to totally have your experience so I'll end with a little quote from my teacher, one of my most beloved teachers, and Julie's, um, Stephen Levine, says, When you let go of everything, only the truth remains. 
the vast spaciousness of true true nature, the ocean of love, the ever-shining. So let's just sit for a moment. Just for a few moments, awareness in, and for a moment notice with no attachment or aversion, just notice what's true right now at this stage in the evening, maybe a tired or a discomfort, maybe something stirred from the talk or the stories, and just notice and see if there's something to let go, if there's something to relax, if there's some way to just let yourself be. And soften your belly. And we make room for whatever it is. Have a beautiful evening walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.